I'm Cassidy Hall. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Carl McCollman, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence. To learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all-too-noisy world. Today, we want to explore the relationship between silence and conflict. And to begin, I want to just throw out a little quotation I saw on a poster many, many years ago, and it has just stayed with me all these years. It wasn't attributed to anybody, so I don't know who said it first, but it simply said, if you do not understand my silence, you will not understand my words. If you do not understand my silence, you will not understand my words. So with that as kind of a starting point, I'll open it up, Kevin or Cassidy, do either of you have any thoughts about the role that silence plays or can play in conflict? And that can be a creative role or even a destructive or challenging role. Yeah. I think uh, for me, uh, that quote is a wonderful quote, actually, because I think it gets at uh, the relationship of silence here. Um, and we've said, you know, as we've unpacked in, in, in previous episodes that we've done about silence not being about um, a void or an absence, actually, that what we're talking about is a, a form of attention or awareness to the world that allows us to be deeply present. And so kind of oftentimes when I hear the word silence, it's reminding me, especially the way we talk about it here on the podcast, is that when we're talking about the positive aspect of silence here, that that's the shift away from a kind of a me-centered focus where I'm the one interpreting where I'm deeply the one that the world revolves around, which is our normal everyday experiences is the way, our point of view. It's the shift from that to a we focus where I allow me not to be the center of attention. I'm still part of the flow. I'm still important, but now it's a we. It's a communal way of being. And so, you know, we've talked about in the past being in the woods or these moments that we've had these with friends or family where really deeply, profoundly uh, seeing in a different way. And it's not seeing. I think we've even said in a past episode, one of us has said the word possibly of beholding, the idea of seeing and being seen at the same time, and who's the person doing this. And what that quote you just pointed out to, I think that articulates really well that silence can cut both ways. If you're talking about a silence that is that shift to the we, and you understand that that's what's going on, then you understand that all the words coming out of that space afterwards or even before it, you know, that, that 
basically shows your intention and it, and it guides a way to understand the conversation. If the silence, however, is being used to punish, if, it's from, if I'm still in my centered point of view and now you've hurt me and I refuse to talk to you about it or um, you know, I'm shaming you or I'm doing something with my silence, I'm using silence as a weapon, I'm trying to silence your voice because I think I should dominate or my point of view should lead and I consider you under me or something in some way. Well, then then that's not really silence the way I talk about encountering and what I think the rest of us talk about where it's an encounter or a beholding. Then that's actually noise. That's actual uh, using silence as a wor- as as a word as as a way of saying no to someone. That kind of silence is just an absolute no as opposed to the other silence which is an absolute yes. I mean that's my initial thoughts. Now Listening to your words, it reminds me of the poster that the um, the activist organization ACT UP used back in the at the height of the AIDS crisis back in the late 1980s, and the poster just very simply said, "Silence equals death." Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's the negative silence of saying no. Right. Right. You know, as we said in a previous episode. Audre Lorde saying your silences will not protect you, right? And then, you know, in that essay, that essay, I believe it's called The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action. You know, she says those words within um, within the essay. Um, she's talking about this experience and what she felt when she experienced the transformation of silence into language and action and just recognized how silence was this this aspect that kept her from from acting from speaking from pointing to these issues of social justice and whatnot right and we can take this to on so many different topics because we can also talk about politics we can talk about silences in our government we can not just related to social justice not just related to uh, you know dealing with other countries but you know related to wars related to um, silence as lying silence as hiding things there's all kinds of ways we can go with this. And I think what's been most personal for me, though, has been the conflict of silence when I have been silent with a loved one. And I think those are the most, typically the most agonizing, right? Because those are the ones that hit the closest to home. Sometimes it's with family, sometimes it's with, you know, our partner, sometimes it's with close friends, you know, and we, we hit a bump in the road. And this is a common thing. And, you know, I always have felt when I've experienced this in my life, I've always felt childish to some degree. It, it wasn't until recently that I kind of I, I was experiencing a silence with someone that was a situation where, you know, it was kind of agreed upon and it was something that we felt was necessary. And it wasn't until kind of, you know, experiencing that for a little bit and then getting over this hump where it became instead a meeting place where we were meeting ourselves as, as individuals and meeting mm-hmm. ourselves in the conflict of that silence in order to deepen essentially my unity with humanity, my uni- unity with that person. And so so conflict and silence, it's it's interesting because, 
you know, we've all experienced it going different ways, right? We've also experienced the times where those bumps in the road last and you don't get to come back and have, you know, a sense of unity with your friend or with your family member. And certainly, you know, I'm sure I'm not just speaking for myself when I say, you know, I have a sense of anger with the silence of the lying from our government right now. Right. So it's silence and conflict is a meaty topic, Carl. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and listening to both of you where I immediately go is that I almost wish we had two words for silence. Exactly. Because, because I think Right. What the three of us bring together and what the movie in Pursuit of Silence and the work of Maggie Ross, you know, the people we talked about on our Heroes episode, uh, you know, the, the entire contemplative traditions of the, you know, the world's great wisdom traditions that, you know, for lack of a better term, we can call that beholding silence or contemplative silence. And this is the silence that listens, the silence that wonders, the silence that loves. And then there's this other kind of silence, and I, I guess I would call it dominative silence. You know, the, the silence that seeks to control, the silence that seeks to obstruct, the silence that, that, that says no instead of yes. And so it's, it's, it's been an interesting journey for me with my blog when I write about silence or even on, on social media, you know, when I tweet about silence and people will, will push back at me. And it's almost always because I'm talking about that beholding silence and then they're talking about that dominative silence. Right. So, so we have to immediately kind of parse out those distinctions. And this is, this is always, I think, been an issue. Uh, the con- what do you mean by silence? I, it's interesting, too. I wonder if uh, we talk to our silent heroes, if we could get Martin Laird or Mar- you know, Maggie Ross or somebody in the room and say, do we need two words? I wonder if they would push back and say, no, the silence of oppression, the dominating silence, is really noise. You know, it's not really true silence, um, you know, that it's kind of a manufactured or an idol of silence is something I want. I, I mean, I don't know, but I agree with you. I almost feel like I wish we had two words, too. It feels that way for me just in communication, because, as you said, you want to talk about this, you say silence and then someone comes back at you that, oh, what do you mean by that? I'm reminded of in the, uh, the Christian monastic tradition, which and it. I'm sure in the other traditions we can find similar issues, but the whole uh, story oftentimes, uh, you know, because I'm honored uh, to know monks and to think about how they offer something for the world, this idea of, quote, I I, I cite it often, and, and it'll come up in my work, this idea of, quote, fleeing the world. And you'll hear that, and it gets this attitude of like, oh, you're a monk and you just want to run away from problems. And really what's really funny about that is the quote-unquote fleeing the world actually means this shifting of attention from this dominating way of being in the world to a different way of being in the world. That you can flee the world while being in the world. If, you know. And so I often tell people, maybe that language doesn't work anymore. Maybe we should say things like translate that from fleeing, actually turning to the world, maybe for the first time, <laughs> actually listening to the world. Or, or transfiguring the world. Right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as we're talking about this and, and silence and this, the different kinds of silence and then also this idea of dominating, right? And, you know, where there's domination, there's no love, of course, as we all know. 
And I just wanted to uh, repeat that and then go on to say uh, this quote from Helen Lees, who's in the film In Pursuit of Silence. And she also wrote the book um, Silence in Schools. And she says, silence is a democratic material. It allows everyone to have equal platform and equal voice. Because if nobody's talking, nobody's dominating. And I just love that, you know, kind of the simplicity of that statement, but also just the way it points to this level ground, this equalization, right? If we're doing silence right, it's it's pointing to equality in some way. It's pointing to unity. It's pointing to, hey, buddy, we're all in this together. So, Carl, I'm curious in in your experience, you know, with with the oppositions of different kinds of silence. Sorry to turn this around on you, but um, I'm wondering, have you ever had an experience where the negative silence turned into good silence? Ooh, I'll have to think about that. That's a great question. You know, it is. It is a great question. And I, my daughter had a brain injury, right? And so she was not always the best at managing her emotions. And she, we used to joke that that on the anger scale, she would go from zero to sixty in about two seconds. And, you know, things that would normally, you know, somebody who, who doesn't have a brain injury might just find annoying or irritating, they would throw Rhiannon into just a flat out rage. Right. Now, the good news is that when I was highly functioning, I knew how to receive that. But the bad news is when I wasn't highly functioning, I could get triggered by it. Yeah. And, and Fran, Fran too, but Fran was, is much more of a spiritual master than I am. So she got triggered maybe 2% of the time and I got triggered more like 50% of the time. So, so this became the, the kind of a paradigm in our family where Rhiannon would just have, have an acting out that really was driven by her brain injury more than anything else. Then I would lose it. And, and, and the, you know, the way we kind of manage this through therapy and trial and error was that Fran would just simply say something to me like the other end of the house, you know, Mm. in other words, just remove yourself from the situation, Mm. go sit, read a book, you know, whatever, twiddle your thumbs, just get away from the situation to give my, you know, me time to kind of, you know, become a grown up again and, you know, get out of that being triggered. Yeah. And then also at the same time to, to remove from Rhiannon, you know, the proximate cause of her rage, because it usually involved something that she, you know, she was interacting with one of us, you know, maybe, maybe we were trying to transfer her onto the toilet and then her foot slipped and, you know, or, or, you know, a number mm-hmm. of different, you know, and now, like I say, in the grand scheme of things, most people who have full cognitive ability, they would just be annoyed by it. Right. But Rihanna just didn't have those skills. Right. So, so it's like Fran would inject a silence between us, you know, mm-hmm. this buffer. And it's like, you know, she, she knew she could count on me that if I had a few minutes to go, you know, and when, what I would do is I would go and try to just focus on my body and my breathing. And you know, I was like, okay, let's try to flush the adrenaline out of the system. Mm. But, it, you know, Rhiannon obviously doesn't have the, this, didn't have the same kind of, you know, quote, grown up skills as I had. So she just needed time, right? You know, time, just let the adrenaline subside. And, um, and you know, and, and, and sometimes Rihanna would get really triggered by both of us. And even though she was in her twenties, of course, cognitively, she functioned more like a child, but we would put her into timeout. 
you know, and she would just have to stay in her room and calm down. And sometimes it took five or 10 minutes. Sometimes it took longer. Right. But, you know, the interesting thing is, is that the story always ended happily because as soon as Rhiannon kind of the, the adrenaline got out of her system, she, I mean, she really was an amazing, loving soul and, and she would be very contrite, you know, and she would want to reestablish relationship with whoever it was she'd previously been very angry at. Uh, And of course, you know, we, we did too. So there was always kind of this, this sweet, I love you moment, you know, kissing and making up kind of thing at, at the, at the end. But, but in the middle of the heat, you know, where her adrenaline is surging and my adrenaline is surging and, you know, it's just gotten way out of proportion based on what the initial issue was. There had there had to there had to be an almost an enforced silence. So I, so I, I guess that's in a way it kind of is a it's not a contemplative silence because it's something that that the third party Fran would impose on us. Right. But it created the space for us to move into that more kind of contemplative or beholding silence where we could just reflect. So. I love the way that points to trust in silence, relational trust and both, you know, you listening to Fran and, you know, trusting that she knows you need to step away for a moment, but also just the trusting that, you know, it's going to be okay despite everything happening. But yeah. It just, you know, the trust and silence is just really beautiful in those, in that situation. Yeah. And like I said, that is, is the result of trial and error because sure. what, we, what we learned was that if, if the triggered adult didn't step away, the conflict just would escalate because once again, Rhiannon did not even have the skills to, to moderate it on her own. So she's just angry and getting angrier and getting angrier and getting angrier. And, and any attempt to engage with her, just, you know, she would reach a point where it all just made her angry and she was overstimulated. She was just, just the, the adrenaline had kicked in her, her, her brain, God bless it, just could not process. And, and so there literally had to be this this buffer that just got injected in, you know, and again, you know, on, on those days when I was more present, you know, she could, and I mean, and Rhiannon would just say really, you know, angry things like, I hate you. I don't want you to be my dad, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, screaming it, you know, and so to stay, to stay present, even then, sometimes I would just have to say, I'm going to have to leave until you've had a chance to calm down. Right. You know, or possibly just try to meet meet the anger with soothing voices, with, you know, loving words. You know, it, it was very complex. It's very challenging. But but I think it's it's interesting for us to reflect on, especially given our current political climate, where there's so much mistrust on both sides of the divide, you know, and so quick to, you know to condemn instead of listen. Yeah. Yeah. And both in Carl, in your situation that you just shared your, you know, and the stories surrounding that and also within our political climate, when silence is done, quote unquote, right. Silence can disarm us. I mean, literally disarm us emotionally, physically disarm us. And that is just, it strips us of our ego, right? It just takes Mm -hmm. us to that 
sacred center and allows us to try to learn how to love. Right. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. As I'm hearing you and I'm thinking about so much that what Carl says, I I resonate with. Uh, I actually recall, as we were doing this, I recalled a time, and I don't want to give too many of the details because it it involves my daughter, but the time where my daughter and I really had a, a, a bad relationship moment where there was just to the place where I got pushed and I was so angry, so angry that I could, I just, I actually froze like I I had Mm. so much rage that Mm. I didn't know what to do with it and it was the first it was one of the few times in my life where uh, the rage was so powerful that it kind of almost like it almost like a, a, a a fuse box flipped and the and I blew a fuse literally blew a fuse and then there was no power sir like there was just like you were I was left in silence like the anger triggered me so badly that I went from this kind of silence that I just had to just stop. Like I just like my mind stopped, everything stopped. And for days I th- I felt this kind of distance from my daughter and it was it wasn't a positive contemplative silence, but it was just so f- strong. And I was trying to bite my tongue cuz I knew if I said even if I just said good morning, I would go off and it would turn into ba- like I couldn't talk. Mm. And quite clearly, I was communicating very well that my daughter learned knew dad was very angry. And she approached my wife and my wife was like, you know, well, listen, you know, you really did and said and these things are just not good and you really need to, you know. So she was able to kind of like negotiate and work, talk to her a little bit. And then my daughter came up to me after about three days where we just basically ignored each other in a way that was just so Mm -hmm. unhealthy and it was so bad and she came up to me and and she said, you know, she was sorry and started to cry. And then that just opened up for me that I said I was sorry. And then it was this moment of I gently, don't know how, but just kind of gently let my anger out in a very soft, quiet way, explaining where I was coming from my, and ultimately got to my fear. I was able to articulate what had caused me to be so angry. And mm-hmm. there was this profound, I had, I don't think I've ever felt closer to my daughter. There was this moment where we just both hugged and like reconciled in such a deep, deep way. So it's interesting because I want to connect that to, you just said politically, I want to connect that. I'm thinking of the time, I'm thinking in South Africa, after all of the problems, when Nelson Mandela f- became president of that country after all of the issues, racial divide. And they decided as a government, which I thought was so unbelievable, they decided as a government to have reconciliation talks and that they had to have 
a person who, you know, an African who was abused by, you know, somebody of, you know, a person of color who was abused by someone who's white. And they had to confront them. And they did it on the record. And it was the person had to hear, this is what you did to me. This is how horrible this is. And then the person responding, either saying they were sorry or being present and not being able to turn away. These kind of reconciliation talks that went on. And out of that, which was a deeply political space, and people, Nelson Mandela got, you know, picked on, and is this appropriate, and what are we doing here? And, and yet they held these talks. And then some people saying, well, why would I do this? I want justification. You know, like, I don't want to just confront them and look them in the eye and tell them what's wrong. I want, like, either money or I want, like, a law passed. or So to have this kind of, like, political moment of silence, basically, that they had to sit together and learn to trust each other in a way. I, I remember thinking to myself how politically genius that was. Like, I don't ever, I don't know, I guess there got, it has to be other times in history where that happens, but, like, that's the one that's modern to me that, like, I wonder, you know, and our, there's so many people in our country think, you know, we all feel that the partisan divide is so strong now. You wonder, could there be a way, rather than having our talk, show pundits screaming at each other and screaming over each other could there be a, a space where there would just be silence with each other <laughs> i don't know how that would work on a live tv show or whatever but you just wonder if that there the model of silence could be a way of allowing for us to let everyone be in the room and let them and let them be who they are you know like don't yeah. make them change their mind be present to each right. other you know i don't know yeah well, this, I think, brings us back to a comment that Cassidy made about how there's a vulnerability in silence. And this is, I think, the challenge that we as a society have, is that politics is about power. And the, you know, we, we play our politics like it's a zero-sum game, and if my side loses... If the other side wins, my side loses and vice versa. And so, so the idea of, of asking people to come together and to say we are all going to step into vulnerability, that's, that's, that's a big order. I think it's a necessary order. I think it's going to have to happen at some point for us as a, as a human family to move forward. But I think that, that, that speaks to the enormity of the issues facing us and, um, you know, it's it's we're we're in an interesting point in history. I'm going to get philosophical. You know, we they, they, <laughs> we say that we say that the postmodern era is the time of the breakdown of the meta narrative. You know, the idea that that the big story, whether it's Christianity or democracy or capitalism or communism or whatever, the big story always seems to end up scapegoating some people or excluding some people or those kinds of things. So we distrust the big story. But what that has led to is kind of a, you know, a, a balkanized culture, a culture, a fragmented culture where everybody has their kind of medium sized story and, and we don't know how to talk to one another anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the way forward is, but I think this is something that, that we all have to be praying about, reflecting about, spending time in silent, reflecting on, because Otherwise, you know, again, it's back to me and my daughter. You know, if you don't inject silence in, the fighting just escalates. Yeah. 
Yeah. And even, mm-hmm. I mean, Ke- Kevin, even your story, and I know that that silence was an icy silence and, and, and there was rage underneath the silence, but it still sounds like those three days of silence paved the way for the moment of reconciliation. Right. And, 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 you know, and so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not on, on, I don't want to go on the record as saying I, I believe in the silent treatment. I think the silent treatment is still toxic, right. but maybe mm-hmm. sometimes it's less toxic than the alternative. Yeah. And sometimes, mm. you know, so it's, 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 you know, it's trying to look at it from all these different angles. And, and in that silence, you know, this idea of it's, it's always hard and to experience that vulnerability and to be the first to say, I love you, so to speak, the first to approach the issue, the first to be birthed out of that silence in order to speak your truth, your heart. And, you know, I I do think that actually does relate to our political world also, because it implies that vulnerability. You have to come to the table with that vulnerability. Otherwise, we just get right back into the power struggle, into the domination game, into everything that silence isn't, everything that love isn't, um, everything that peace isn't. But it's interesting because both of your stories about your daughters ends with that vulnerability of love being birthed from the experience, the silence. And, and yeah, and Carl, like, like what you said, you know, that I would concur that the silent treatment is a very toxic and difficult thing. And I also think when we're talking about rage and those kind of things, you certainly don't want to scare someone into vulnerability, right? You don't want to scare someone. And and Kevin, of course, I know you did not desire for her to come to you crying, right? No, not at all. (laughs) That's that's what actually (laughs) broke my heart when that happened. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, there's all sorts of different, you know, routes we can go with that. But I mean, my point with that is just, it's beautiful when the outcome is this vulnerability births a a true union um, that is out of, out of the purity of love, not out of worry or needing to be good enough or trying hard enough or something like that, but a but a purity of of love. Right. It's interesting too, because hearing what Cassidy just said about vulnerability and openness, it it does make it when you think about the political world, as as Carl says. Politics is about power. It's about, you know, whether we like it or not, it is about how we're going to order worlds and everything else. And and so power doesn't like, well, at least power the way it's been played, power does not like vulnerability. And so what we're actually talking about is the impossibility of, of something. And yet I want to point out that the impossible is possible. And maybe the meta narrative is that we're looking for is silence. Maybe the meta narrative here is a democracy of silence. That that that's and I think I would like to argue. Carl got philosophical. I'd like to argue in a in a semi preaching kind of way that you know maybe the reason that encountering silence exists as a podcast is that we're hoping to God on any level our discussion and interest in this topic raises the bar for some people. Maybe it it lets people think about the possibility that silence could be is is an avenue for them you know and maybe they've never heard that said before that silence could be useful as a way of approaching the world in a non-power way the way to love the world in a way well what i'm kind of hearing from this conversation is that silence 
has something really creative to offer into a conflict situation, whether it's creating the space to listen, creating the space to cool down or calm down, creating the space where we can invite all parties into a vulnerability, or just, again, that, that kind of creative space of wondering and speculating mm-hmm. and, and brainstorming, all of these kinds of social functions that, that, that silence can offer. But then, you know, thinking back to watching cable news and watching the talking heads just shout over one another again and again, and it's just as true on CNN as it is on Fox. I don't think, you know, it's just the yeah, right or just the it's, left. It's, it's not part. Nobody has a monopoly on that. Yeah, yeah that seems yeah. to be a. Cr- I and, think. I think if even if you went turned it to a channel on on communism, they would be doing. It doesn't matter yeah, the system yeah, of yeah, thought yeah. or anything. Yeah. Right, and so um, so the question I think really becomes, how do we, how do we kind of raise the profile of silence in in our lives, in all of our relationships, whether it's on the family level, dad and the daughter who are having a fight, or on that, you know, international level. And um, yeah, and you know, if this this podcast can make a tiny little contribution to that project, then then I'm happy we're doing this. But I think this is something that, that I hope all people of goodwill can reflect on, because I think it's really, really vital. Yeah, very much, absolutely. I agree. Well, there, there's so much, I think, that we can continue to say about this topic. It's a huge topic, and I have a feeling that it's going to continue to kind of show up in future conversations that we have here at Encountering Silence. But I think to you know finish today's episode, I just want to go back to the quote that I launched it with, that, that old poster from, you know, 40 years ago, if you do not understand my silence, you will not understand my words. And I know we've touched on this previously in this podcast, that the kind of complex relationship between silence and language or silence and uh, syntax or however you want to frame it is, is part of what makes this such a fascinating project that we're doing. I, you know, people have kind of teased us online. You're talking about silence. Isn't that a paradox? Well, of course it's a paradox. And yet the, you know, we operate under the assumption that if we're speaking mindfully or, or, or prayerfully or contemplatively, then there is silence even in our words. And if we bring that same kind of degree of contemplative or mindfulness into our conflict, then hopefully even our silence will be part of the conversation that points toward reconciliation. At least that would be my hope, whether we're talking on an interpersonal or um, international level. At any rate, it's time to wrap up for this episode. So thank you again, both of you. I I continue to be inspired and nourished by our conversations, and I look forward to the next one next week. Likewise. Thank you, Carl. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, 
please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being. Thank you.